Why don't you go ahead and uh, open up in your Bibles to Psalm 74. Pretty sure it's in your bulletin there. Uh, but if you have your Bible, Psalm 74, right in the middle of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Psalm 74. Well, I'm sure that uh, no one here would say that they enjoy waiting. Most people don't like to, to wait. In fact, I'm, I'd imagine that a few of us race through a few yellow lights on our way to church this morning so we didn't get stuck waiting behind a red. Um, you think about little kids, how they just they can't uh, wait for their birthday, they can't wait for Christmas. Or maybe you think of, of waiting for medical test results, just how, how difficult that can be, waiting for that phone call, waiting to get into college, waiting to hear about how the job interview went. Waiting is, is difficult. And yet we really find most of our lives, we, we find ourselves waiting for something. That, that waiting is a normal part of everyday life that probably most of us would find difficult. And uh, that's also true for the Christian life. That the minute you become a Christian, you find yourself waiting. Uh, waiting for the Lord to answer our prayers. Waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. Waiting for the return of Jesus. That the Christian life is one of waiting. And I'm sure everyone here has experienced some degree of difficulty after a period of waiting on the Lord. And during these times, uh, hope can begin to fade. Uh, prayer can become a, a weary task. And you begin to wonder, will the future always taste as bitter as the present? Will it always be this bad? How long, O oh Lord? And that last question there is, is one that we just hear throughout the Bible in a variety of forms. How long, O oh Lord, as the people of God wait and wait under the burden of what makes little sense to them. And that's what this psalm here is about, this Psalm 74. It's about waiting on the Lord, and it's asking the question, how long, O Lord? But it has a, a specific angle it wants to consider, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Specifically, it's asking this question. The people of this psalm are asking this question. Why does God wait so long to act when his own name is dragged through the mud and his people lie in ruins? That's the question of the psalm. Well, let's read it together and then we'll jump in. Psalm 74, starting in verse 1. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long how long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? 
Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, why the enemy scoffs and foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the clamors of your foes, the roars of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. Just pray and ask the Lord's help as we hear his word. Father, we, um, we know that as Jesus taught us that apart from him we can do nothing, and that includes hearing the word with understanding. And so, Lord, we ask for your help now by your spirit as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably could tell um, just from the tone of the psalm that this psalm would fall in the category of lament. This is a psalm of lament. And we have just dozens of these psalms throughout the Bible. And in the psalms of lament, the people of God, they, they cry out to the Lord. They bring their grief, their pain, their confusion to the Lord. This psalm is a little different because this is a what we would call a a community or a congregational lament. So it's not just one person crying out to the Lord, but it's a people. It's a congregation. Just, just look at verse 1 there. It says, God, why do you cast us off forever? Us, plural. Or, or look at the image of a sheep, the sheep of your pasture, right? So it's this idea of a, of a congregation. Or verse 2, remember your congregation, so the idea here is, is that this is a, a community of God's people, a congregation crying out to the Lord. The good old days are but a distant memory. And now the people of God, they lament together as they wait on the Lord. And so this, this psalm is really great because it does two things. It not only gives you know, voice and expression to the difficulty of waiting on the Lord. It kind of it puts, we're able to kind of put our, our feelings into their mouths as they cry out to the Lord. But it not only does that, but it teaches us, as the people of God, how to wait. That it teaches us that the best place for the people of God to wait on the Lord is together in prayer. And so how do we get there? What will move us from the edge of despair to our knees in confident prayer? That's what the psalm's about. Uh, kind of a summary statement of the psalm, kind of just to bring some organization to all of this, it would be that hope in the king's salvation moves us from the edge of despair to confident prayer. That it's hope in the king's salvation. That's what moves us from the edge of despair to our knees in confident prayer. And we'll see three looks for a waiting church. 
That's how the psalm breaks down. The first 11 verses really focuses on the present. There's an honest look at the present. That's verses 1 through 11. But then there's this hope-producing look back at the past. That's verses 12 to 17. And then finally, there's a prayerful look forward to the future. That's verses uh, 18 to 23. Let's look at the first one there, the first look, uh, an honest look at the present. You can really hear the sounds of a psalm of lament in those opening questions there in verse 1. Just, just look at verse 1 again. It says, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why, do you, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And so these are just heavy questions, right? And, and they, re, they reveal a, a, a burden, a difficulty, and the gist of them, them seem to be, Lord, why is this happening? And will it be this bad forever? That's the gist of the questions. But, but really, if you, th- these questions here, it's really just the, the tip of an iceberg. Because in order to understand the circumstances and the difficulties and the problems underneath those questions, you really have to consider verses 2 to 11. Because verse 2 to 11, it gives us the context for these questions. It shows us the difficulty the problems, the concern, the situation that's generating or producing these questions. And so what the psalm does, it doesn't ask a question in in verse 1 and then go on to answer the question. It doesn't do that. It puts forward a question and then takes us inside to feel the pain of longing to be in the presence of God again. It puts us on the scene, as it were, so that we can see the sights, so that we can hear the sounds, so that we can feel the burden. Just look at verse 3. Really clear in verse 3. It says, talking to the Lord, it says, direct your steps to their perpetual ruins that the enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Lord, direct your steps. Come see what we see. Come see what's happened to your people. Or look at verse, uh, look at verse 7 there. It says, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name bringing it to the ground. Lord, look what they've done to the place that represents your name. Come see what we see. And it appears that the circumstance, what this psalm is addressing is what we would call the exile. The exile. And this is a huge moment in just the broader story of the Bible. And it happened at about 587, 586 BC. So this would be towards the tail end of the Old Testament during the times of like the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah. It'd be the time of the exile, Zephaniah, Zechariah, those prophets. And, and during this time, it comes on the heels of the Lord sending the prophets for generations, generation after generation, warning the people of God, wooing the people of God, calling them back to him, calling them to repentance, to covenant faithfulness, And yet after generations, the people of God refused to listen. Even their own kings led them into false worship. And after years and generations of this, the Lord brought discipline upon the people of God. And the Babylonians came and they just ransacked Jerusalem. They leveled the temple. They knocked it to the ground. They dragged off most of the people into Babylon. And this lasted for 70 years. And now Psalm 74 is expressing the difficulty of living in the midst of those 70 years. And the people of God, they cry out, How long, O Lord? 
How long is this to, to last? And, you know, when you think about it, you can understand their struggle, right? Because on the one hand, what do they know? Look at verse 1. We're the sheep of your pasture. We're your people, Lord. And the end of verse 2, you used to dwell in Mount Zion. Lord, we used to dwell with you in the temple. We used to meet with you and adore you and worship you. But on the other hand, that's all been destroyed. And the Lord is yet to fix what has been broken. And so the people, they groan under the waiting. Verse 9 probably really captures the tone of this uh, the best. Look at verse 9. It really captures the heartache and the pain. It says, uh, it says, we do not see our signs and there's no longer any prophet. There's no one to speak the word of the Lord to us. And there's none among us who knows how long. How long, oh God? It mentions there in verse 9, uh, signs. And this is a, a reference from, to, to the temple. The context helps us understand that. The temple in Jerusalem and the temple in, the, in Jerusalem, it served as this constant sign of, of the presence of God, the protection of God, and it was on the hill of Jerusalem. So no matter where you were, you could look up at the hill, you could see the temple as a constant sign that the Lord is with us, a sign of his protection, his provision, his, his presence. But even the temple itself, if you were to go inside, it was filled with all these signs of God's covenant love and faithfulness. So you had the Ark of the Covenant, right, where the word of the Lord was. You had the altars where the priests made atonement for sin. Uh, you had the golden lampstands. And in fact, even the wood carvings. Uh, some of you might be woodworkers in here. You might be interested to read in Second Kings just about the woodworking within the temple. It, it was filled with, with carvings of cherubim, angels, um, palm trees, flowers. It was a picture of the Garden of Eden that first dwelling place where God met with his people. It was a beautiful place filled with signs that represented the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of the living God. But it had all been destroyed by these violent, arrogant people who came in and just leveled the place like a bunch of crazed lumberjacks swinging their axes, bringing it to the ground. Look at the the, the drama of the words there in verse 5. Like they were like those who swing their axes in the forest of the tree and all the carved wood. That's the carved wood in the temple. They broke down with hatchets and with hammers. Or, or verse 8, they said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. It's just you can hear the madness on their own lips. that They were, were focused on destroying any memory that at one time the God of heaven dwelt here with his people. It's devastating what these people were going through. Maybe it might help us to just picture it a little bit more, feel it if, um, if we imagine just a, a scenario where, you know, after the worship gathering this morning, you go home and you pull into your driveway and the door of your house has been kicked in and you go inside, and, and things have been stolen, things have been destroyed, family pictures are thrown on the ground, people have gone through your things, you know, your house has been invaded. You can just imagine how traumatic that would be. You, you would never forget that. It, it would stick with you for the rest of your life. But what happened here was worse, because this was God's house. This is where God dwelt with his people. And, and just so those questions there in verse 1, they don't express 
you know, overt unbelief or accusation against God. These are questions of a tired, weary people groaning under the waiting, knowing that God is faithful to his promises, but their experience is not lining up with that. And so they cry out to the Lord. And so now that we kind of got our hands on the situation, I want to just double click on on what the the psalm emphasizes. Because it emphasizes something that we might not imagine. You can think if that was your life, if, if your home had been destroyed, if you had been dragged away from your land, probably would not be emphasizing what this psalm is emphasizing. I know I wouldn't. It emphasizes actually the worship in the name of God. They are primarily concerned about the name of God and his worship. Look at verse 10. It says, How long, O God, is the enemy, or is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Or verse 7, that they profane the dwelling place of your name. The focus is on the name of God. Verse 4 makes it really clear that what's in view here is worship. It says, Your foes have roared in the place of your meeting place. That's the temple. It says they set up their own signs for signs or, or signs as signs. And what's going on there is um, back then, if, if one nation were to conquer another nation, the nation that came in would take their image of their God, their idol, and replace it uh, with um, the image of the, of the God of the nation they had just destroyed. So you can just think of it that they came in, they destroyed the temple, which was a, um, a visible demonstration of the God of Jerusalem, the God of the Israelites, and they replaced it with their pagan gods. Right? So this is not just a weary people. This is ruined worship. It's not just a grieving people. This is silenced worship that the true worship of God has been replaced with idolatry. Well, what can we learn from this for us? We should grieve when God is not worshipped. The psalm, it really forces us to ask of ourselves, how do I feel about God not being worshipped? And do I long to be in his presence Do I long to see him honored where I live? Or have I grown too comfortable with the ways that he's dishonored around me? So the psalm presses upon us. You know, there's a lot of things that um, concern us. And some of those are completely appropriate, right? We, We all have important things that we have to be concerned about. But if we're honest, I think most of the things that fill up our mind on a day to day basis are 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 insignificant and worldly, and petty. And here's one thing that even we as Christians probably don't think enough about, one concern we probably don't think enough about that's not at the front burner of our mind, the worship in honor of the living God. And so I just want to mention here by way of application two often overlooked reasons to lament. Two often overlooked reasons to lament. First, that true worship has been silenced. You think about God, uh, that God is the creator and the sustainer of all that is. You just imagine, you know, when you woke up out of bed this morning, and you know, you know why your feet hit the ground instead of floating up into the air? Because God actually sustains the laws of gravity that just keep our feet on the ground. 
I mean, he sustains everything from the ants crawling on your feet uh, to these trees to your whole lives. And he is worthy of praise as the God of infinite and unchangeable perfections who's full of mercy and love. He's abounding in faithfulness. He is to be treasured and cherished and adored by everyone. It's due his name. It is right and just that God, the very standard of all that is good and true and beautiful, would be adored and treasured by the creation that he created for that very purpose. And so true worship is the very meaning of our lives. It's why we exist. It's also why we do things like plant churches or send out missionaries into the mission field, why we care about the unreached peoples of the nations, or why we care about something like the greater Boston area, which is only about 2% evangelical Christians. It's why we, we train up our kids and disciple them in the ways of the Lord. It's why we share the gospel. This is why we do these things, so that God would be worshipped. You know, there's other reasons to do those, right, that are good. You know, that people would come to faith. That's a great reason to do those things. That Christians would be built up in the faith. A great biblical reason to do that. But, but chief among all the reasons for the Great Commission is the worship and praise of the triune God, which means that all of the costs and the risks in the work of making and training disciples through the local church, it's aimed at the most important, valuable, praiseworthy person, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the effort is aimed at him, that he would receive the honor and praise that is due his great name. And it also means just that the ordinary work in the church is, is aimed at solving the greatest injustice that Jesus Christ is not worshipped in the place that he has made. So that's the first reason to lament that we often don't think about, that true worship has been silenced. But second, that false worship has replaced it. You know, thinking about this, um, uh, I couldn't help think about just the story and the history of New England and I'll spare the details, um, but at one point, you know, this New England in the greater Boston area, or maybe we could just even think about the South Shore to make it even more relevant, it, it was filled with, with more Christ-exalting churches, churches that loved the Lord, that proclaimed his name. In just a few short generations, though, that's all changed. I mean, how, how many church buildings do you see that have been converted into condos or libraries or office space. And it's not only that, but so many of the church buildings that still remain and have people coming, they might have Christ on the name, on the sign on the front lawn, but there's no Christ in the pulpit. It's been replaced with false gospels and celebrating unholy living and Bibles just ignored and collecting dust in the attic. It's like a modern day picture of, of Psalm 74. And that should affect us. When we're okay with that, it reveals that we have a problem in our hearts. It reveals a spiritual problem that we're not concerned that the Lord is not being honored right where we live. And it should cause us to mourn. 
Or, or, or maybe when, when you read this psalm, you don't think of a place like the South Shore, but you think of a person. At one point, a person that you know in your life, it, it seemed that they were walking with the Lord. It, it seemed that they had, had loved, loved God and were following the Lord, but now they've turned away from Him. And, and you pray and you wait, and you pray and you wait, and it goes on and on and on. And you get to a point where you just say, How long, O oh God? How long? Or maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a church uh, from some, some other time in your life, some other period in your life, a church that at one time was, was thriving, but then it was torn apart by sin or by scandal or by fighting or, or, or something else. And you pray and you wait and you say, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh God, before you fix what is broken? And so the psalm, it, it teaches us that this is to be a, actually a, a common Christian experience that we would find ourselves in our Christian life growing weary under the burden as we long for the Lord to defend his name and to make his bride beautiful again. But if we're not careful, we can get too weary. We can grow too weary under the waiting and that's where this congregation here in Psalm 74 seems to be. They seem to have walked right up to the edge of despair. And they're kind of standing, looking over the cliff of despair, about to fall off into hopelessness. But it's there, right on the cliff of despair, right on the edge of hopelessness. It's there in verse 12, where we hear the, the sound of, of cry, the cry of faith in the king. And so this, the, the psalm shifts here from this honest look at the present to this hope-producing look back at the past. Look at verse 12. Notice the change in tone here. It becomes celebratory all of a sudden. It says, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. There's this big shift in tone from lament, from grief, to this great cry of hope in the God, the King, who's working his salvation in the midst of the earth. You notice that there's not only just um, a shift in tone, there's also a shift in person. You remember the first 11 verses, they focused on, on, on pronouns like we and us and our. But notice, what is, what's in verse 12? God is my king. It's as if one person here in the midst of this congregation, this grieving congregation, it's as if one person has arisen from the ruined state of the people of God with a cry of hope in the king. It's like the people of God are about to walk off the cliff of despair until one person grabs them by the back and pulls them from the ledge and says, no, don't forget about the king. Remember our king. He is working his salvation in the midst of the earth for his people. And you just think that as, as members of this church, part of the reason why you have a membership covenant is just to put before your faces on a regular basis that you're, you have this kind of commitment to each other. That you have the, the privilege, the responsibility to help each other come back from that, that cliff of despair. That when you see someone walking off the cliff of despair, to hold on to him, to grab him and pull him back and say, no, remember the king. 
The Lord is working out his purposes in the midst of the earth. Do not lose heart. Do not give up. And this is why throughout the New Testament, you have these, these, these church uh, commands, things like carry one another's burdens, pray for one another, encourage one another, because all of us are prone to do this. At some point in our Christian life, each one of us will probably get to a, a point where we grow too weary under the waiting for God to answer our prayers, to fulfill his promises. And we need one another to remind each other of the goodness of God. Now, he is working his salvation in the midst of the earth. And oftentimes he's doing that through the difficulties of life in a fallen world. And so that's what this person in the psalm does. He, he, he pulls people back. He pulls them away from their present state to look back at the past and remember what God has done, to remember God's rule and to remember God's rescue. And as he does that, the psalm shifts from sad lament to this beautiful poetry as he stands in awe of the presence of God, the power of God, despite the mess around him. And he mentions three things in verses 13 to 17, three things about God's rule and God's rescue. I'm just going to mention them very briefly, and then we're going to zoom in on one and consider it in a little more detail. Uh, verse 13 there says, You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters uh, on the water. Uh, and this is a, just a poetic way of actually talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. It's just a poetic image of the Exodus. So you, you, you remember in um, the book of Exodus, God redeems his people out of slavery. He brings them uh, to the edge of the Red Sea. You have the armies of Pharaoh marching down to grab the Israelites and bring them back into slavery. And they're pinned between the armies of Israel and the Red Sea until the Lord divides the water. The people go through on dry land. And then Pharaoh and his army tries to come through and the water crashes back down around and destroys them. And so the sea monster there in this poem is that's Pharaoh and his army. And the sea gobbles them up and destroys the sea monster. Or verse 14, look at verse 14. It says, you, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. It's just a way of talking about God's victory over the pagan gods. Uh, and so um, a common uh, pagan god at that time was this serpent-like creature that was called a Leviathan. And, and you just can imagine that for the people of Israel who had just seen their homes destroyed by this, these pagan nations, how encouraging it would have been to remember that, no, God is sovereign. He's king even over the so-called gods of the nations. He crushes their heads. In, in verses 15 to 17, he shifts from the king's rule over the nations to the king's rule over creation. And there's all these images of Genesis 1 about God creating the world. It says you split, verse 15, you split open the springs and the brooks, you drive up ever-flowing streams. It's the, the image of God separating in, in the creation the, the, um, the dry land from the water. Or verse 16, yours is the day, yours is also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. When God separated the night from the day in Genesis 1. Or verse 17, that God has marked out these distinct seasons, that the, that the, the world has this rhythm and this order and this predictability to it. And so you just think that, that as the seasons change, we're about to enter into the fall. Every time the seasons change, we're reminded that the king of creation is still on his throne, ruling over his world. And so what has God done? 
in, the, in these verses mentions three things, that, that he's, he's rescued his people, he's redeemed his people, he's, he's ruled over the nations, he created the world. He's completely in control as the king. just want to zoom in briefly here and just look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says, you divided the sea by your might and broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. Uh, oftentimes in, in Hebrew poetry, when it mentions the sea, we're meant to have this image of um, uncontrollable chaos and death. So you think about the Israelites, you know, they were land-dwelling people. They didn't do water. The sea, that was a place of unpredictable chaos and death. And so in the Hebrew poetry, the images of the seas or the raging waters, it's this image of the, of the things that are out of our control, the chaos of life, the difficulties of life, evil itself, and even death are pictured by the sea. You know, and even today, you know, the, the sea is this um, untamable foe that we should fear. I mean, even today, if you watch videos, you know, the big waves can just knock over these massive ships or, or tsunamis can come up on dry land and pull full cities back into the water. I mean, the sea is so mighty. It's such a great picture of something that's out of our control. But what does God do? He just splits it. He just says, you, water, over there, and you, over there. And the people walk across on dry land. You know, there's so much that's out of our control. You just think about... um, even just the mission of the church, you know, we, we can't change people's hearts. We can't even change the hearts of our own family members. You know, the church has always looked weak and frail in the face of persecution. Uh, we, we can't control the, the winds of culture that seem to be blowing in such a godless direction. But the king can. The Lord can. He just splits the sea. And he will in his time. We just have to wait. And so the dividing of the water, it should make us think of the exodus. It should make us think of redemption. So it's not just that God is able to control what we can't control. That's true. But this takes it one step forward. That he uses his might for our salvation. He uses his might for our salvation, he split the sea so that his people would be safe and saved from the armies of Egypt. And so, you know, when everything seems hopeless, we can say what the psalmist says here in, in verse 12, that God is my king, that he's working his salvation in the midst of the earth for me. And so there's the cry of faith. You know, faith It looks beyond the circumstances in front of our face. It looks through them to the God of heaven who has proven himself to be a faithful redeemer. And that's what the psalm does here. It it takes us back to that great moment of redemption, the exodus, that great moment of Old Testament redemption, the exodus. And And it goes back there and it says, behold your king. Look what he's done. Look what he's done for his people. And of course, as Christians... We don't go back to the Exodus. We go back to the moment that the Exodus was simply pointing forward to. We go back to the cross, that great moment of redemption when the king left heaven to die in the place of the rebels, 
to accomplish the salvation even of his enemies for dying in their place, by dying in their place on the cross. You know, when we think about the cross, we, we, we should think about um, what the New Testament really emphasizes. It emphasizes, uh, you know, sacrifice, atonement, substitution, the king dying in our place. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you know, the most important thing that you actually need to know about the Christian message is that, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. And he left heaven to come to earth and he lived the righteous life that we did not, that we should have, a life without sin, doing everything right and nothing wrong in pure devotion to the glory of God. And he died on the cross for our sins. He actually took upon himself the penalty that we deserve. And he was raised from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was uh, pleasing to God and acceptable to God. And he he was raised to reign as the head of the church and the king of the universe. And now all people everywhere can turn from their sins and trust in Christ in his finished work for sinners and be reconciled to God, have their sins forgiven, and actually enjoy God as their father. And if, you would, if you're interested in hearing more about that, I'd love to talk to you. I know Pastor Stephen would love to talk to you. I'm sure there are dozens of people here who would love to talk to you more about that. But that's actually not the only thing that the Bible talks about when it mentions the cross. It talks about that the most often, but there's actually another thing that it mentions, that on the cross, the king dealt a death blow, a knockout punch to all the powers and the forces that oppose him and his people. The the cross is really the victory of God, even though it looks like defeat. And so Paul will say in Colossians 2, speaking about the cross, he says, he being Jesus, disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we we think about the cross as this historical, objective, immovable sign of the victory of God over sin, over Satan, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for a church that's, that's so often overmatched and outnumbered in the world, This is such good news because it means the fruit of that victory is coming, that it's only a matter of time, that God has worked his salvation in the earth through his son, defeating our enemies, dying for our sins, reigning as our king. And so although the psalm doesn't answer the question, how long, O Lord? Actually, Jesus does. The Bible does. You know, we, we read at the end of the Bible. What do we read? As the, as the people of God just throughout the Bible cry out, How long, O Lord? What's the last page of the Bible? What's the last word of the king to his people? The end of Revelation. He says what? Surely I am coming soon. And it's in that note of expectation that the Bible closes. And now we, in the last 2,000 years, have been praying and waiting, saying, come, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray with that note of expectation, and we actually pray in that confidence that the king who said, I am coming soon to his waiting church, 
will be faithful to his word. And that's what this congregation did. They, they close in prayer. So we get our third look. We had an honest look at the present, a hope-producing look back in the past. And now we have a prayerful look forward to the future. It might be helpful just as we move to close, just to kind of quickly reset where we've been. So far, this is what the psalm is doing. It says, hey, come grieve with us over the ruined state of the people of God. And then it says, now come hope with me in the God of our salvation. And now in this third movement, it says, now go pray together for God to act. And that's the path that he wants us to take. He wants us to travel that path because that's the path that we need to take. That if we're going to pray like they pray at the end of this psalm, we need to have a wide-eyed awareness of the present state of things. We need to have fresh, renewed hope in the king of our salvation. And then we're ready to get together to pray for the king to act. And so in this final section here, verses 18 to 23, we won't get into all the details. The congregation prays really for two main things. That God would defend his name and deliver his people. First there, that he would, de he would defend his name. Look, look at verse 18. It says, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and foolish peoples reviles your name. So what do they pray for? Look at verse 22. Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Defend your name, God. Defend your cause. Or, or verse 21. Speaking about the people of God, it said, let, the downtrodden turn, uh, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. So it's this request that, Lord, let us, the people of God, deliver the people of God so that we could praise your name. So you notice that from the beginning of the psalm now to the end, the themes haven't changed. It's still about the name of God. It's still about the worship of God. But something has changed. The people, no longer do we hear their questions. No longer do we hear them groaning. We hear them praying. We hear them praying for God to act. At the beginning of the sermon, um, I said that the, the best place for the people of God to wait is together in prayer. And so as we come to a close here, I just want us to imagine something for a moment. Imagine that um, this Saturday night that your church has planned a corporate prayer time where, where the people of God are going to come together, where your church is going to come together to pray. And the content of the prayers will be one. The focus of the prayer is one that God would, would work in our area to purify the churches, to purify the gospel that they preach, to, to, to see people come to faith, that God would come and show his name to be great and glorious right here on the South Shore. Let me ask you a question. What would keep you from coming to that prayer meeting? What might be missing in the equation of this psalm that would keep you at home? Maybe it's the first part, a lack of awareness about the present state of things. Brothers and sisters, we live in a place 
with less per, two, than 2% Bible-believing Christians. Less than 2%. It is a mess. It is a mess that we should not ignore. And some of us have not thought about that in a very long time. And so we're blind to the present state of things. That might keep us away from praying. Or maybe it's the second thing. So overwhelmed by the present state of things that we've lost our hope in the king. And so we, we have this attitude of, oh, well, then what's the point of praying anymore? Both of those things could keep us away from gathering to, to pray to the Lord and to beg him to act like we see at the end of this psalm. You know, it might be worth an afternoon thinking about what it might be for you. What would keep you and what would keep your church from making the prayer of Psalm 74 becoming your prayer, both individually and as a church? What keeps it from coming to that? You know, throughout the Bible, and even throughout the history of the church, we see that God has been pleased to accomplish his great eternal purposes, not apart from, but on the heels of and through the prayers of his people. You know, sometimes when people hear about the sovereignty of God, that God is king over everything, sometimes people say, well, then why should we pray? It's like, no, 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 no. It's precisely because we believe at the core of our being that he is king, that we do pray for him to act, to defend his name, and to make his bride beautiful again. And it's, it's no coincidence that so often the people of God are moved to do that. The people of God are moved to a sense of urgency after they've been forced to the edge of despair, weaned off this world, and left with one hope left to come together and to cry out to the king, defend your name and deliver your people and do it in our day so that you would be praised. And so you just wonder, what might come of prayer meetings like that if just little churches all around the South Shore in New England just gathered together regularly with a sense of urgency in fresh hope in the king and prayed like Psalm 74. You wonder what would happen. Well, we actually don't have to wonder because we can find out. And I hope that you do. Let's pray. Our great God and king, you are so good and so worthy of praise. Be praised here, Lord. Be honored here, Lord. Make your name great. Show yourself to be the great and merciful God that you are. Pray for First Baptist Situate that their hearts would be renewed and revived to praise your name, to live for your glory, to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless them, Father. Pour out your spirit upon them and bless them. In Jesus' name.